Good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ian. Today we will seek to draw many of our earlier observations about soul care together under the single umbrella of the church community. We will see that we have not only the giftings from God to carry out soul care, but we have the expectation and indeed mandate from God to pursue his reforming will in the minds and hearts and lives of God's people. And thanks for joining us as we seek to challenge ourselves to recapture our calling to help one another navigate the soul. Okay, this morning I've asked for some helpers. So the kids I know came up earlier. All right, kids, come on up. Come on up, come on up. You're going to give me a hand this morning. I'm going to have the boys just stand here on the floor. Ellie, how about you come on up here, honey? Oh, who? Rin, I'm sorry, I got the wrong Hallsworth. All right, all right, Rin. Now, this is going to represent. What is this? Um, Let's see if they can't call. Garbage can. That's right. This is the garbage can. And in here, what do you put in here? Garbage. You nailed it, folks. <laughs> I want to see. So, does this belong here? Is this where it belongs? No, we need to put it all the way back there. Can you lift it for me and carry it back there? Uh, no. <laughs> okay, just try. Let me see. Put your arms on it. See if you can lift it up. Can you lift it? It's too heavy. Too much garbage. Now, do you think these guys might be able to help? All right, guys, come on up. We're gonna we're gonna help her out. I want everybody to put your hands on here. See if you can grab real low. There you go. All together now. Watch the stairs. Very good. Together. All right, all the way to the back it goes. Wow. Wow, big round of applause. You'll see the metaphor is not too hard to miss, isn't it? That um, when we have garbage in our lives, sometimes it's more than we can carry. Sometimes it's too heavy for us ourselves. And it can't stay. We got to need to get rid of it. Although I'm afraid that far too often in our world and in our culture, we are too prideful to admit that we need help. Sometimes we're, we're a little bit afraid of what people will think of us if we said we needed help. They might think I'm too weak. To handle the garbage in my life. They might think I'm not able. They might think that I have to admit that I need help. And so what do most people do? Well, unfortunately, they disguise the trash in their life as though it belongs. When in fact it doesn't. They grow accustomed to the smell and it just stays there. We read a passage this morning uh, from Psalm 118, which is... The psalm that declares, save us. We need help. We admit that we're broken and we must look outside ourselves to the God who has the strength. However, if you look back at that passage in Psalm 118, it started with a verse that gets repeated into the New Testament for the apostles saw the way in which the world treated Jesus. 
In John's gospel, he, he begins by saying, Jesus came to his own, yet his own did not recognize him. In Psalm 118, it says that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Do you know that wasn't only a problem back in King David's time? That wasn't just a problem back in Jesus's day. Do you know that people today do the same thing? The cornerstone, the one that will help line everything up in the exact way the building is supposed to be structured is too often cast aside in our lives. It's too often rejected. Our goal this morning in our study of navigating the soul and building a biblical foundation for godly mental health has got to include a chapter for the mechanism God has designed to help you, to help me, deal with the heavy buckets of garbage in our lives. And do you know what that is? It's the church. God has given you and me, he's given his people a family to belong to. Our problem is too often, two ways. The first is an internal problem, is too often we're too ashamed to ask for help. Right? It's, it's too heavy to move, but too bad, it's going to stay, I guess. The second problem is there has come a distortion external to us that claims authority for how to deal with the unseen. A secular realm around us that has left the path, has left the mechanism that God gives to try to introduce worldly strategies as to how you are to process the garbage, how you are to deal with the bucket of trash. And that's what i like us to address this morning. Uh, we're going to be in, again, we're taking kind of the best passages in the New Testament for dealing with these subjects. And for this morning, we're going to be in the book of First Thessalonians. But before we go there, and you're welcome to turn there now, but before we go there, we're going to do like we've done every morning, which is to try to set some groundwork, some foundations as to how we will make sense of both the right path and the wrong path that are offered to us when it comes time to take out the trash. I want to submit to you uh, again that Jesus is the cornerstone. Amen? Jesus is the benchmark. Jesus provides the strength. And do you know what the church is called in the New Testament? It's called the body of fill in the blank. What is it called? The body of... Christ. And so here you have God given the power within the community for how we are to help one another, and except we're all too often um, refusing the stone. We cast it aside instead of recognizing it as the chief cornerstone. If you look in your sermon notes, uh, we're going to be evaluating these two realms of helping to take out the trash. Uh, the first is secular psychology, and the second, I'm just entitling biblical counseling. Um, both of them are going through some of the very same functions, but they have some key differences that are critical for how we need to make sure that we're lining up with finding truth so that we may obey it. Uh, the first has to do with the subject of authority. 
So when we're going to examine secular psychology and biblical counseling, one of the, uh, and probably the greatest distinction between the two is under the subject of authority. I wrote this down. Uh, Without an objective truth, you cannot make authoritative claims about right and wrong. Does that make sense? Everybody knows what objectivity is. It means outside of myself. Instead of subjective, meaning I'm the subject. I'm the one claiming authority. Objectivity says something else declares what is true and therefore gives authority to make distinctions between right and wrong, about human behavior, about human motivation, about human purpose. It comes down to a question of these two things, observation or revelation. You see, secular psychology um, has outlawed faith and religion. Instead, they have to make their, uh, their basis of authority upon data sets. So patterns by which they see behavior, field studies, um, societal benchmarks for categories of normal and abnormal. They look to humanistic theories about mental pathologies that leverage blame. Whose fault is it? If you go see a secular psychologist, whose fault is it? It ain't my fault. <laughs> uh, I was born this way, which is a blame upon genetics. Nature is the blame. Or it was, it was my parents screwed me up. That was the problem. Because <laughs> it couldn't be my fault. And that, that's not a question of nature. That's a question of nurture. So childhood experiences, um, my, uh, my mother and father or lack of mother and father, uh, my environment around you, whatever it is at the end of the day, what they, have, what they have positioned themselves to say is that ultimately it's not my fault. The blame stands external to myself. Here's a passage. <clears throat> this is from uh, Eric L. Johnson from Northwestern College. He says, the naturalism and neopositivism that pervade psychology preclude any such use of religion Within psychology, the father of modern psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud, says religion is the process of unconscious wish fulfillment. That's a little insulting. Where for certain people, if the process did not take place, it put them in self-danger of coming to mental harm, being unable to cope with the idea of a godless, purposeless life. That's that's not what you call good news. (laughs) Um, out, out of his book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, uh, Carl Truman, in dealing with Freud's position as being the father uh, of this science, uh, recognizes that they identify happiness as a psychological state, which becomes the goal of secular psychology. Uh, he says this, if happiness is the desired goal of all human beings, then for Freud, the pleasure principle which is the quest for pleasure focused on sexual gratification, is central to what it means to be a self. That's a, that's a mouthful. That'll take you a minute to think through, but uh, he's right. If the authority in your life 
is a desire for happiness, then you will stop at all costs to make sure everyone around you redefines whatever words, whatever pronouns, whatever it is they would claim such that it will not impinge upon your desire for happiness. Because who's the ultimate authority? Not God, but man. And so observation becomes triumphant. Observation, what we can see going on as opposed to revelation, what God has decreed to us. In fact, this is what God says. This is Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge or submit to him and he will make your paths straight. I want to make sure that you and I start at the very beginning if we're going to understand where, do, where has God given us the mechanism to get the garbage out of our lives that it's, it doesn't come from yourself. It doesn't come from the science of naturalism. And even as much as I, I say this, these are on polar opposites. Revelation and observation are on polar opposites. At the same time, I want to make sure that I don't throw observation completely under the bus. There's a lot of good that can be gained from recognizing patterns and doing studies. The problem is primary or secondary authority. That's the problem. And when it comes to the question of authority, religion has no place. Faith has no place in secular psychology. But when it comes to biblical counseling, we rest entirely on the revealed word of God for truth. Secondly is this, it's a, it, re, it results in a misdiagnosis. And so you, you have two options again that are completely at opposite ends of the spectrum. Secular psychology says that the heart is good, the heart is right. Have you heard this phrase before? The heart wants what the heart wants. So go get it. Burger King picked that up, right? Have it. No, that's right. Christian counseling is going to say the exact opposite. The heart is broken. It's actually deceitful. Who can, who can even understand the human heart? And so what we end up with is a complete misunderstanding and a misdiagnosis of the root of the problem. When you start with a misplaced authority, it will result in a misdiagnosis of the problem. And so what we're left with today is relativism when it comes to morality. H however you see it is right for you. Uh, have you ever heard that phrase before? Perception is reality. Has anyone ever heard that? Man, I hate that phrase. Because perception is perception. That's why we call it perception. <laughs> and it, it may be real for you, but that doesn't make it actually real. Uh, the Eastern world, who, again, doesn't have the revealed word of God, Eastern religions have a, have a really common uh, para uh, uh, parable uh, that they share about uh, some blind sages, some blind wise men who encounter an elephant in the desert. And one of them, remember, they can't see, one of them comes to the trunk and he's feeling the elephant and he says, oh, this, this must be a snake. Another one of the blind men finds the ear and says, well, this must be a fan. Another one finds the leg and says, it must be a pillar. Another, the side, it feels like this is a wall. And the, the last one on the tail says, it, it feels like it's a rope. And uh, in Eastern tradition, which is 
what we would call moral relativism today, the claim is, see, you can have multiple truths within a single reality. That's the claim. Except the problem is, I don't know if you know what the problem is. It's an elephant is what the problem is. It's not a snake. It's not a pillar. Well, if you misplace your authority, then you're also going to misplace the diagnosis. Um, Hold your spot in 1 Thessalonians if you're there, but I want us to look at a passage in the Gospels. Would you turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15? We're just going to read a quick story in Matthew 15 as Jesus deals with this exact same subject. But for the people who Jesus is going to deal with, it's the Pharisees. They thought they were right. They had stepped outside of God's revealed world to hold to to human tradition. That's what they're going to hold to. Everybody there? Matthew 15, starting verse 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother. Anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is the gift devoted to God. He is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. By the way, did you catch there the difference of authority? The word of God are the traditions of men. Verse 7, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. But what comes out? Of his mouth is what makes him unclean. Then the disciples came to him and asked, uh, Did you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my father, the Heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, explain this parable, please. Uh, Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. I think he was very kind when he says that. You dummies, right? Is that that what your text says? No. Verse 17, he says, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. I I want us to see as we're giving contrast to these two options to take the trash out if you start with a misplaced authority it will lead you to a misdiagnosis of the problem where you will incorrectly think that your heart is right when in fact it is evil 
And the word of God teaches us that. Everything that we just read from Jesus, all of those sins are sourced where? Give me the answer. Sourced where? They come from the heart. All right, thirdly, has to do with, the, with not the source, but the goal. What, 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 is the, what is the end focus, which I'm calling centrality? What, what is secular psychology focused towards? And what is biblical counseling focused towards? And it becomes the difference between serving self or serving Jesus. It's one or the other. In fact, I'm not making that up. That's what Jesus says. Do you remember when he's approached on the question of money? He says, you cannot serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other. Serve the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, which we would see as a stand-in for yourself. Because you're serving money for yourself. So you can't. You can't. It's one or the other. And when it comes to secular psychology, the end goal is your happiness for you. This is, this is a hard thing for some people to hear. But God is not ultimately concerned about your happiness. In fact, God will allow you to go through very difficult circumstances in order to make you more mature in Christ, in order to make you Holy, in order to open your eyes to the trash that's around you. He will let you go through hardships. Because happiness, as it's defined by the world, is not true happiness. Matthew chapter 6 helps us see, and we're not going to turn there. It's a, it's a whole other message on what does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to be blessed? And as Jesus gives the examples, they're in complete contrast with the way the world thinks of it. This from uh, Larry Crabb. He's the founder uh, and director of New Way Ministries. Passed away last year. He says, most psychological theories explicitly or implicitly accept humanistic doctrine as the foundation for their thinking. A system where human interests, values, and dignity predominate is unashamedly a man-centered system with no room for the holy direction of an objective personal God. And when it comes to mental health, this is where we as broken humans, if you're going to start on the wrong foundation, lead to the wrong diagnosis and ultimately source for the wrong goal of centrality, you're going to go crazy in life. You're going to go crazy with anxiety, trying to meet all of the needs and desires that come from the wicked, deceived heart. In fact, Jesus deals with this. He says this in Matthew chapter six. So don't worry. Saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. But, see if you can identify the the different goal here. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All of these other things will be added to you as well. So, what we're dealing with when it comes to secular psychology, which can be helpful as a secondary authority, not as a primary authority, is seen with some completely opposite observations in regards to their authority, their diagnosis, their centrality, and lastly, sustainability. And this has to do with codependency versus interdependency. When it comes to counseling, and I've talked, I've seen therapists, I have studied this, 
I, I have found even some benefit to it. But do you know what happens when I leave the therapist's doorway? Do you know what happens? They say, please uh, see the receptionist on your way up to schedule your next appointment. And, and you know what happens is that I am now continually needing this help because it's sourced from a dry well. It, it's not a spring overflowing with life. I'm going to have to continue to go back, which is called codependency. As, a, as compared with or contrasted with the church, which is an interdependency. The difference between these two is one of them stays dependent. The other one fights for independence that serves others. And this is exactly what God wants to call you to. God has a purpose for you. He has a, a way he's gifted you to serve the rest of the body. And I promise you, there will be moments in your life where the garbage is too heavy. It's going to happen. Sometimes you're going to need others to help you carry out the bucket. But other times, you are going to be the one who helps someone else carry out the trash too. I want you to see these passages that confirm this. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for what? For the good of everybody. Interdependency. You've been gifted by God, not for you, but for the person sitting next to you. Turn to your neighbor and say, thank you. <laughs> Very good. Uh, Galatians chapter 6. Watch what Paul says here to the end of his letter. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So uh, th- th- this, is, this is foundational for us. Uh, we're going to look into God's word and we're going to find five primary observations for how we can practice communal soul care. Because the church is the mechanism that God has given us. This is the family dynamic. That you don't need to go search outside of God's Uh, provision. You don't need to go into secular psychology. Except you might if we're not doing it right. What do you guys think? Is the church doing this right? Has the church uh, hit a home run every time on this? Or could we do better? What do you think? Think we could do a little better? So God's word is designed to help us. So that's what this morning is, is about. I prayed a long time in preparing this message because I believe there are many of us here who need to submit to the observations that we're going to find in God's word. And so my, my prayer is that the spirit is the one right now, as you're listening to this message, the spirit is the one applying these truths into your life to get you to wrestle with them, to see how much you are going to be willing to step out of your comfort zone because there are, there's trash in your life that needs to be taken out and you need help. And there are people around you who have trash that you can help to take out. So with that, if you will turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, towards the end of Paul's letter in chapter 5. We're going to read starting in verse 4 through verse 15. Again, we're going to look for five primary observations that help us to understand how we can best prepare ourselves to communally, in the community, care for one another's souls. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 
page 1684 in the Pew Bibles, if you are searching for that, 1684. Paul says, but you brothers and sisters are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. And since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Let me just pause there for a moment. You remember last Sunday? Demon possession and uh, influence. I don't know if you remember that message, but same same word, right? Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God, same passage, same theme. All right, let's continue. Verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Now, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers, Warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. I'm just going to read that again. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. But always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Okay. We're going we're gonna to pause there. I think there are five main observations we can make for this. It, I'm, I'm calling this the principles of communal soul care. Principle number one is transformation. The, the first part of our ability to function as God's mechanism to help each other grow starts with transformation. If you, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you can't do this. It won't work. Paul Paul begins his first six verses that we read today entirely outlining the way in which you once were in darkness, but now you're in the light. So don't live like you're in darkness. The people who sleep, sleep at night when it's dark. They get drunk when? At night when it's dark. And you will continue to live in that behavior if you live in the darkening of an untransformed Heart. So it begins. It starts here. Authentic change only comes through Jesus Christ. And so it's as simple as receiving the gospel. You can't save yourself. God loves you so much that he made a way for you. And do you know what it takes? All it takes from you is giving up your entire life. That's all it takes. Tiny little price. All you need to do is dethrone yourself from ruling in your heart and place Jesus there. Acknowledge him. 
and he will make your paths straight. Everything begins with transformation. If you don't have this, then you are still spiritually dead. To rule on the throne of your own heart is to rule for a very brief number of years until death conquers you. But Jesus conquered death. So I submit to you, it's better to let him rule in your heart and life. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're told that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. When we followed the spirit of the air, the evil one who is at work in the world today, following our desires and therefore becoming an object of God's wrath. But the good news is God sent his son to die in your place and rose from the grave to give you new life. You know, being dead will not help at all. Uh, My phone died the other day. Um, I kept trying to make calls, but it won't work. I yelled at it. I thought yelling would work. Work, phone! Try harder! Didn't help. Why didn't it help? Because it was was dead. It, It needed an external source of power to come to life. That's what transformation is. So did you see with me in the text? You, you shouldn't be in darkness, verse 4. This shouldn't surprise you. Uh, verse 8, since we belong to the day, here's what transformation looks like. Be self-controlled, putting on faith, love as a breastplate, hope of salvation as a helmet. And in doing so, you will be on the path of receiving the fullness of your salvation in the promised resurrection that comes. Starts with transformation. Secondly, the principle of communal soul care is empathy. Empathy. I think I've preached on this in the past. It is, it is a reminder that we need often. The church does not need sympathy. You don't need sympathy. Sympathy is, oh, that's too bad for you. Sorry that that happened to you. Empathy is when I feel what you feel. And the only way that you can do that is if you're willing to place yourself in their shoes. And if you are committed to doing that under the conviction that you actually are invested in their life. Empathy here means that our witness as Christians, this is our witness to the world, requires mutual investment as has been modeled by Jesus. Where was Jesus before he was born? He wasn't on the earth. He was with God. Philippians chapter 2 teaches us that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He, He poured himself out, being made in human likeness. Ah, he's modeling for you, church. He's showing you the way to empathy. Look with me back in the text in 1 Thessalonians. Verse 10, he says, He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. When it comes to empathy, we need to make sure that we see that Jesus has already modeled it for us, putting himself aside so that you can have life. Uh, This passage from Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another 
in love. This passage, as we already heard out of Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. Jesus models for us what empathy looks like. And if you look with me in, back in uh, 1 Thessalonians, uh, go, just go back a chapter. Look, look back in chapter 4 because the Thessalonians did awesome at this. They were fantastic. Look in verse 9. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 9, Now about brotherly love, we don't need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. <clears throat> the key word here is brotherly. That means we're part of the same what? If we're brothers and sisters, we're part of the same what? Family. Yeah, so what happens to you happens to me. Empathy is a way of feeling heard. I feel seen, I feel known. I'm not alone because I know I have other people with me. It's non-judgmental. It's being willing to put yourself in their position and to suffer with them. Thirdly, accountability. Uh, Look with me in verse 11. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. And we ask you, brothers, respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Accountability here is where the church holds a reciprocal expectation to help each other progress in the faith. Emily told me this week, she said, Ryan, you're using too many big words in church. (laughs) So uh, what I mean by reciprocal is that you are willing to give and you are willing to receive. It's an expectation that we hold each other up together. The Old Testament has a verse in this. As iron sharpens Iron. This is how brothers sharpen one another. We need accountability. And so this is what Paul says. Encourage each other. Build each other up. And then he looks to the leadership of the church. And he has two words in there. Respect and admonish. I don't think we like either of those words, right? Uh, It's a little bit hard to give respect sometimes. And honestly, I don't think that it's due unless these workers who are over you in the Lord, are, are doing their job. What's, what's the verb there? To admonish. Do you know what that word means in Greek? It means to warn them by putting something in their mind that seems to be missing. You're, you're doing it wrong. This is not how you live the Christian life. Let me warn you, if you continue down this path, it's going to lead to destruction and despair and pain in your life. That's what admonishment looks like. It's done in love. Remember, if a brother's sinning, gently restore him. And for those who are doing that, respect is what is asked of them. When I was in junior high, our church had a, uh, an overnight. Uh, I think I honestly forget which church it was at. We traveled somewhere in some vans and there was some VBS style games and activities. And then the boys all went to one room and the girls all went to one room. But I discovered I could get a big laugh out of some of the girls by goofing around because I was so mature. Yeah, so mature. And so when it was time for bed, I snuck over to the girls' side. Some of you can tell this is not going to go well for me. 
Do you have you ever had anybody do um, this the stairwell gig? <laughs> you ever, ever, ever see that? Yeah. So uh, super cool me uh, thought that I could get some of the girls to laugh in doing that, and I remember seeing the pastor's wife suddenly disappear. I didn't know where she was until she burst through the door in front of me and grabbed my ear. Now, I don't know if you knew, know this, but there are certain pressure points on the human body that immediately uh, receive submission. And this is one of them right here. She drug me by my ear and threw me back into the, the boy's area. And um, that's what we call admonishing. That's, that's what that is. Look at the verbs that are given to us in this passage. Encourage, build up, respect, admonish. There is a reciprocal expectation that we are accountable to each other for our good. This is the mechanism, the community that God has given to help us take out the trash. This passage from Hebrews chapter 10, the writer says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on. You know what a spur does? You can ask Quint. He's taught me many times what a spur does. Help, helps communicate to the animal something that they need to hear. We, we need to spur one another on in love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. I, I can't tell you how important it is at moments of the Spirit's leading that you let somebody know how glad you are to see them today. I, I saw a, a friend this morning uh, come to church and uh, just warmed my heart. Uh, told her I was so happy to, to see her because she means so much. Have you, have you ever had that moment where you just need to be reminded how much you're loved? This is the place to do it. And you won't, you won't get it if you don't come. That's why we need to meet. Don't give up meeting. And we're mostly past COVID now, so that's a little bit easier. But anyways, accountability. We need to mutually expect a reciprocal holding to each other to help us progress in the faith. Fourthly, is therapy. Remember, therapia, the Greek word means healing. It means healing. And so look with me again into the text. We have this in verse 14. Paul says, and we urge you, brothers, warn Your Bible might say admonish. It's the exact same verb as was used earlier. Warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak and be patient with everyone. God has designed the church as his agent to help the hurting in our world. And you have the examples that are given to us right here. In fact, I want to um, I want to break down, which I think it might be a little better translation than the one that the one that I have here. When he says warn the idle. The word warn is the same as the word admonish. It means that you have something missing. You need need an external injection of truth to get you on the right right path. Uh, When when I was working uh, as a missionary, we we had teams that would come in the summer. Every morning started 6 a.m. We had to be up. We were the leaders. We were in charge. And we had some interns. And this one particular morning, one of the interns... A cup of coffee in his hand and flip-flops on. Not his work pants, not his work boots, shorts. And as we went up on the hill to work, he went down onto the beach. Now, how do you think I handled this moment? Very teachable moment, right? 
Because here he is not contributing as he should because he has been positioned in a place to help, but he's not. That's what admonishing is. And so I approached him and we fixed the situation. Um, the, the Bible here uses the word idle. Um, this word means more than just uh, idle. I think of like a truck that's started but not moving, right? It has that idea, but the, the, the word means more than that. It means disorderly, pertaining to refusing to work. Look at this passage from Ephesians. Paul says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love. How? As each part does its work. Hear me. You have a gift of God that only you have. You have a sphere of influence to serve the Lord and serve the body of Christ. We're told right here in this passage, if you're not working, if you're not participating, if if you put your flip-flops on to to your faith, you need to be warned. That's not how the game works. We're only going to grow as each does its part. And so this is part of what we need to understand. It means, uh, the word idle means irresponsible. It means undisciplined. It means lazy. It means unruly. I, I don't want to listen to that. Well, the admonition here is that we are to warn those who are like that. Uh, I also want to give a better translation to the next one when it says encourage the timid. Uh, I think that this would be better translated as comfort the discouraged. So it's encouragement, but it's a particular kind of encouragement, meaning comfort. And to those, it's not timid. It's not like, oh, I'm scared to go. Is it raining out? It's not, it's not timid. It's discouragement. Do you, you know, you can see these people on a Sunday morning. If they walk through the doors and you ask them, how are you this morning? And they go like this. I'm fine. <laughs> great. Totally great. You know, they're not. Has that, has that ever been you? That, right? there, there, there's moments where I'm just not I'm just going through something right now. It's more than I can carry. This trash can, the bucket, it's more than I can handle on my own. And so we are told to comfort and to encourage. Here's what I want you to know, church. God has designed you, if you're doing your, your part. And remember, we can do better at this. We've all agreed on that. Because everybody has a role to play. All God's people have a place in the choir. Some sing low. Some sing higher. Some sing out loud on the telephone wire. Some just clap their hands. Remember that from Sunday school? You have a role. It's different from the people around you. But we need, every, we, we need all hands on deck. We need everybody to work together if we're truly going to be the mechanism that God's designed. Lastly is this. Uh, it's charity. Uh, this is what I wrote down. We will all gain when we give beyond what we've received from sinners. Because Jesus has first given charitably to you and I. Here's what that means. We all gain when we treat one another 
the way God has first treated us. Look with me one last time into the passage, verse 15. Paul says, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. What did the Old Testament call that? I for a... Yeah. Uh, nope. You need to make sure that doesn't happen. I want you to uh, raise your hand if you've ever been mistreated in church. Come on, liars. We're in church this morning, right? Like th- This has happened. I've talked to people who have left. They're not coming back because of the smallest thing that was spoken one time at the front door. From, from somebody who didn't mean it at all. Offended? Are you kidding me? Offended? We pray every single week, Lord, forgive us our sins. As we forgive those who sin or trespass against us. Watch how the New Testament handles this passage in Ephesians 4. Paul says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ. God forgave you. Or this passage, Colossians 3, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against somebody, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And you might say to me, pastor, but it's not fair. It's not fair for what they did. And you want me to forgive? And I want to say, that's why it's called forgiveness. If it was fair, we'd call it justice. But it's called forgiveness. And you need it from God. You've received it from God. And so do not let anybody pay back wrong for wrong. Probably the best passage of all, Romans 5. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So five necessary principles that will help us be better, church. God has designed a mechanism to help you rid yourself of that unnecessary baggage in your life and in your heart. And he's gifted you with the strength to help somebody else. Um, I can't do it. I can't do it. No pastor can do it. It is, is completely fictitious to imagine that's what we pay him to do, right? I can't do it. I, I, you, we need the whole church, all hands on deck to help with this. And so I want to conclude this morning with some very practical points of application. If you have your sermon notes, um, if you haven't looked at them yet this morning, let me, let me encourage you to find them. I totally lost mine. Here we go. I, 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 I really want you to take a minute and try to answer this. First question, the way I serve the Lord at this church is by what? How, how would you fill in the blank? Remember, God has gifted you. There's something that you get to do that nobody else gets to do here. You, you might have other people who are joining with you, and it might be a children's sermon, it might be singing in the choir, it might be greeting at the door, whatever it is, other people might be with you, but nobody can do it the way you do it. And if you can't answer this question, I submit to you, we are all missing out. The rest of us are losing because there's nothing for you to write on that line. It might take you a minute to think of it. And I don't mean you got to become a preacher. That's not what I mean. Like you, you can fill in the blank here with saying, I give the best hugs during fellowship. Whatever that is, right? That, that's your ministry. This is what I do. This is how I serve. But I submit to you, if there's nothing that you can write on that line, that is a problem. And we can do better. 
I would love to talk to you more about this if you have questions on that, but that's the first question. The second one that is necessary for us to answer is um, uh, a list of names. These are the names of the people in the church who know me, who will rebuke me, who are for me, and who I can be honest with. Those Those aren't, by the way, different people for each one of those. You need to have someone that you can be vulnerable with, both to listen and to know deeply from the heart, this person is the person that I I can turn to. You, You don't need to turn to secular psychology. God has gifted you with the ability to bring healing within the community itself, unless you don't have anybody that you can write on that line. And I want to submit to you this morning, church, that's a problem. The very best. I mean, if you look around us, we, we're a pretty big church. I mean, we're small in comparison to some others, but as I give evaluation over what we have here, there's no way I can deeply know each and every person in this church. And so our solution to this is to have the church bud off into these little groups, sustained groups that are going to walk the faith journey of life together. We call them small groups. You can call them life groups. They can be as fluid as belonging to a similar ministry or interest, and they can be as committed as some of them are, like, my, like mine, where we gather every month in our homes to break bread together, to share a meal with one another, to look into God's word together, and to ask questions that help us grow to trust one another and to love each other. These, these are the people who I know can speak to me with authority if I'm out of line. These are the people who I trust are the ones who are for me, I know that they are going to support me. If you don't have that in your life, I I would so desire for you to find it. And if you're interested, I'd love to talk to you more about that after church as well. Last question. And my challenge to you is you need to answer all these. Last question. Um, These are the people who I am helping to carry their bucket. Just as I was starting the service this morning, I I had no less than seven people approach me with serious prayer requests. Things like like deaths. And I can't solve all of those, but the body of Christ can. And so hear me, church. I know that needs exist where we have to support each other. We have to help one another carry those buckets where they don't belong. They don't belong here. Let's carry them out. And so can you write any names down? Is there anybody in this church that you are willing to help carry their bucket? Because if you can't write any names down, I submit to you that that's a problem. God has designed a mechanism for healing. And we have been for week after week after week studying the different aspects of mental health. We're calling it soul care. The very best way that God wants to help you navigate through this world is in a family of brothers and sisters. Can we pray this morning?